Good seeing you this morning. Take your Bible, if you would, open it to Mark chapter 10. We continue to move through the Gospel of Mark, and we are going to look at the cure for a blind and dying nation, Mark 10. We're going to do probably at least two parts on this message, and I'm going to weave together the, the situation in Israel and make some application to the United States. And let me tell you why I'm doing that. Because I don't live in first century Israel. And neither do you. However, we always want to take the context of what a passage is teaching us, and then we want to make some application. And and I just want to speak from my heart for a second and tell you that um, I know it's on the hearts of a lot of people, the status of America right now. Where are we? How does God view us? How much does this election really mean in November? What do we do? (laughs) Given the climate And what's before us? There's all these voices coming at us, right? And as the church, what we have to do, and and I think that you guys would all resonate with this, is number one, we need to anchor ourselves always in the Word of God. We need to let the Word of God direct our steps. But I think it's important for uh, the nation, and I've seen polls in the nation, I've talked to a lot of you guys about this, is that I think you want to hear from your pastor uh, about a perspective, a biblical perspective. Is that true? Okay, so that's what I'm going to try to provide. I'm going to try to do it with the balance and the grace that we all need, because I realize that even in a room like this, there are very passionate differing opinions about how we navigate the times. So we're going to anchor what we say in the Word of God, but I'm going to give you a little bit of the history of the country For some of you, it's going to be new, and for some of you, it's going to be stuff you already know. But what we want to do, ultimately, is talk about the cure. I'm not here just to talk about the problems. We all can turn on the news and talk about the problems, right? You know, I can turn on the news every single day and hear everything that's wrong. But I also want to talk about a cure for America, a cure for the world, and that cure is actually before us in our text. So... As God would have it, in the timing just before an election and looking at these things, just moving through the Gospels, here we are to look at the cure. Let's pray. Father God, we are here uh, only by your grace. It's your grace that called us. It's your grace that keeps us. And we are so grateful to live in a country where men and women decided that they needed a country that had foundations rooted in the God of the Bible, and they did that unashamedly. We know, Lord, that they were imperfect people. We know that they made their mistakes just like we do. But the heart of the nation was established very early. And sadly, through a lot of revisionism and through things that are just not taught anymore, sometimes I fear that we've forgotten who we are. But Lord, we always want to remember who we are in Jesus Christ first, no matter where we live, whether we live in the U.S. or somewhere else, we always find our identity in Christ. But we do live here. And Lord, I believe in your providence. I believe in your sovereignty. You called us to live in this place at this time, even for such a time as this. And it is our prayer, Lord, that we would have open ears to how you might use us in our generation. Because this is the only one we get. We're not going to do this again. We're not going to be born somewhere else. There's no reincarnation. This is our shot to be a voice, to, to be a change agent, to be one that serves others and proclaims the gospel. So it's our prayer. It's my prayer, Lord, that you'd lead us by your Holy Spirit now and help us just to put aside everything, every weight that we brought into this place that you may speak, Lord, and that we'd have ears to hear what you'd say to us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So as we look at the uh, final healing in the Gospel of Mark, this is the healing of what's, who's been called blind Bartimaeus. He's the final physical healing in the ministry of Jesus Christ recorded in the book of Mark and in the book of Luke. This is the last miracle that he does. 
As I've been telling you in previous weeks, he's been moving rapidly towards Jerusalem. He's been telling the disciples that he's going to go die. They can't quite fathom it. They've been arguing about who is the greatest and you know, who's going to get the top positions, and they just seem to not be able to really comprehend or take in the words that he's saying. And so as he moves now uh, towards Jerusalem, he is going to do a final healing, and we're going to pick up the story in Mark 10. This is verse 46. Before we go there, let's just pick up the theme verse as we go back and revisit it one more time. Mark 10, 45 says, For even the Son of Man, that's a title for the Messiah from Daniel 7, did not come to be served, but to serve. And the way he served is he gave his life as a ransom for many. Now, if you set the historical context, one of the things that you realize, you realize that's going on in Jerusalem right now is that, in Israel for that matter, is that Israel is under Roman occupation. And scholars date the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus between about 30 and 33 A.D. The nation of Israel actually falls in 70 A.D. And if you've studied any history of the nation of Israel, you know the temple falls to the ground at the hands of the Romans, and it never rises again. They have not rebuilt that temple in 2,000 years. And Israel as a nation, uh, you know, you could say for a while, ceases to exist. There's Jewish people on the planet. God retains Israel as a people, but as a nation, they're gone out of the land. They don't return to the land until 1948. They recapture Jerusalem in 1967. That's in a lot of our lifetimes. I was just a little toddler at that time. But in 1967, through what many would describe as a miracle of God, they won the Six-Day War, they recaptured Jerusalem, and everybody who's a Christian and has any you know, inkling of Bible prophecy has been watching Israel. We've been interested to see what God's doing. And if we look at the Bible and we look at the history of the Bible, we know how the nation started. The nation started with a single man. His name was Abram. He was a idolater. He was uh, a man who was uh, from a family of idolaters. And God called him and God said, look, I'm going to make a great nation of you. And he called him to go to a land by faith that he didn't even know where he was going. And he left his homeland by faith, Ur of the Chaldees, and he went to a land that God would show him. And through one man, a son was born, and that even while, uh, you know, Abram and, and Sarai, now Abraham and Sarah, were very old, and Isaac was born, called the son of promise, a single son through whom the line of the Messiah would come. And then through Isaac, we know Jacob and Esau were born, the two fighting twins in the womb. It turned out that the older would serve the younger, and Jacob would end up serving his uncle Laban. He would want to marry Rachel. He would get duped by uncle Laban and end up having Leah first and then Rachel, if you know the story. And he, the, the one who was so tricky with his brother ended up getting tricked by his uncle as well. But ultimately, he has 12 sons and one daughter. The 12 sons come from four different women in an incredible chapter. If you want to read Genesis chapter 30, uh, as I mentioned uh, a few Wednesday nights ago, the, the, the whole scene of Genesis 30 could be a show on Jerry Springer. I mean, that's just how ugly and weird and bizarre it was. Maidservants being brought in, sisters fighting, who's going to be with him, this and that. But ultimately, these 12 sons are born. And these 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. And one of the sons, his name is Joseph, and he is one of the sons born to Rachel. The other one is Benjamin. And Joseph is a man who is tricked by his brothers, sold into slavery. Some of them want to kill him, but ultimately he ends up in the land of Egypt. And as he's in the land of Egypt, he spends time wondering what God has done to him. Because he's falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, he ends up in prison uh, you know, he's basically he seems like he's a forgotten man. But then all of a sudden, through a series of events in the book of Genesis, this man rises up to the second leadership position in Egypt, the most powerful nation of the world. His family has to go to Egypt in a famine. And Joseph reveals to his family that he's still alive. 
And Joseph is a type of Jesus Christ. And Israel is preserved through this man, Joseph. And Israel continues to live on as a nation. The whole time, God intended that this nation would be a light to the Gentiles. Now this nation, you know, as we move quickly now through the corridor of history, they've had their share of problems. One of their main problems throughout their their entire history is they continue to forget God in times of prosperity. Sound familiar? They continue to embrace the gods, the false gods and goddesses around them from the other nations. They, even their greatest kings like David, and not so much David, but especially Solomon, got duped into idolatry, set up high places. And the Bible even says that Solomon's heart was turned away from God. And the nation that was a light to the Gentiles, the nation whose king Solomon, people from all over the place came to hear his wisdom, that nation became all of a sudden a nation that was inviting the judgment of God. And why do you ask? Well, simply because they turned their back on God. They started to try to, you know, be uh, all things to all people. They forgot their identity. They forgot who they were. And Solomon started building all these high places, and God was displeased with Solomon. And good kings throughout the history of Israel would tear down the high places. They would say, no, our allegiance is to the God who established this nation. And a king would really be judged based upon what he did in terms of the national life of Israel, whether he would turn the nation back to God or away from God. You could think of, you know, Josiah as a king. You can think of uh, Ahab as a wicked king, Josiah as a good king. And they were largely measured by what they did in terms of the national life of the nation. And some of you are saying, Pastor Michael, but we live in the U.S. It's true, we do. But I think you all understand that the U.S. is not Israel, but the U.S. was established on the God of the Bible. Interestingly enough, Ronald Reagan said, if we ever forget we are one nation under God, then we will, be, we will soon be one nation gone under, close quote. You know, even our presidents throughout the ages realized, as imperfect as they were, that we needed to be a nation that understood our origins. We're so worried about pleasing everybody who, you know, has a comment in this nation anymore that we don't even want to talk about it. But look, the foundations of this nation were placed firmly on the God of the Bible. There's no denying it. If you, uh, for example, look at the historical sites in America, particularly the capital city of Washington, D.C., it reveals that America was a nation birthed by men who had a firm reliance upon Almighty God and on his son, Jesus Christ. Inscribed upon our buildings, monuments, and national symbols is our nation's faith in God. A sampling of this evidence seen in some of our monuments and buildings in Washington, D.C. follows. And I just want to give you a few, but I think this is important. The Library of Congress within the Great Hall of the Jefferson Building are two climate-controlled cases. One contains the Gutenberg Bible, the other a hand-copied giant Bible of Maine's. The display of these two Bibles is very appropriate because in the words of President Andrew Jackson, the Bible is the rock upon which our republic rests. Many biblical inscriptions can be found on the ceiling and walls, including the light shineth in the darkness and the darkness comprehendeth it not, from the old King James. And wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom with all thy getting, get understanding. In the main reading room are statues and quotes representing fields of knowledge. Moses and Paul represent religion with the inscription, What doth the Lord require of thee? But to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. Science is represented by the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. History is represented by one God, one law, one element, one far off divine event, to which the whole creation moves. The Supreme Court, the biblical foundation of American law, is evidenced throughout the building as well. On the outside east pediment is a marble relief of Moses holding tablets containing the Ten Commandments. And, you know, as you continue to to move through the, the buildings in D.C., you can see that the Bible, the scriptures are everywhere. 
Moses and the Ten Commandments, the ultimate lawgiver, his full face, the only one seen in the honorable court. Why? Because America knew what it stood on. America knew that there were laws from God that did not change. No matter how the winds of culture change, God does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the early founders of our country knew precisely that. So even in the walls of our Supreme Court, now today, we have a judge who was ordered, you know, and he fought this, that he was told the Ten Commandments could not be, I think, in the court that he represented. We have people saying that the Ten Commandments should not be posted anywhere in our nation. Why? This is our foundation. This is who we are as a people. We cannot deny it. In the Capitol building, all of the eight large paintings in the rotunda present aspects of Christian history. A few include the landing of Columbus. Columbus said he was convinced to sail because, quote, it was the Lord who put it in my mind, and that, quote, the gospel must still be preached to so many lands. One of the paintings in the rotunda is the baptism of Pocahontas. This shows the baptism of one of the first converts in the Virginia colony. The Virginia Charter said they came to propagate, quote, the Christian religion to such people as, have, as yet live in darkness and miserable ignorance of the true knowledge and worship of God. Departure of the pilgrims from Holland shows the pilgrims observing a day of prayer and fasting. William Brewster is holding an open Bible upon which is written, quote, the New Testament of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, God with us, is written on the ship's sail. Also in the rotunda are carved reliefs, including Penn's treaty with the Indians. Penn called his colony a holy experiment and said of it that my God has given it to me. Will I believe, bless, and make it the seed of a nation? The landing of the pilgrims says, quote, having undertaken for the, undertaken for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith, close quote. And I could go on and on. But we've had recent voices tell us that we're not a Christian nation. That we, you know, there's a lot of denial about our foundings or, you know, a lot of people who want to redefine this nation. Let me ask you, just as a person observing the times, how do you think we're doing? How do you think we're doing since we decided to move away from God and take prayer out of the schools? And, you know, now we've had students show up at certain public schools with their Bible, and they've, been, they've had their Bible confiscated from them. In free reading time, they brought their Bible to school, and their Bible was confiscated from them. A lot of teachers in the public schools who, there's a lot of good Christians in the public schools, but they feel like they're under a lot of pressure not to uh, talk about Christ or the Christian faith. Look, there's been a lot of revisionism that's gone on in this nation. And I think it's about time that the pulpits in America said, look, we're not ashamed of who we are and we're not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, there is a precedent, folks, and here's the precedent. When a nation moves away from God, we get ourselves in trouble because if you move away from God, to where do you go? The only place that you can go if you move away from the God of the Bible is either to a false God or to humanism. And America has done that. We have moved largely to humanism. We've made it all about us and you know, what we need for our lives. And sadly, this has infiltrated much of the church. There's a prayer room in Washington, D.C. It contains an open Bible sitting on an altar in front of a stained window showing George Washington in earnest prayer. Behind him is etched the first verse of Psalm 16, which says, Preserve me, O God, for in thee do I put my trust. The Washington Monument, the tallest structure in Washington, a message of praise to God goes forth, engraved upon the aluminum capstone on the top of this 555-foot monument is Laos Deo. Inside the structure are carved tribute blocks with many godly messages like holiness to the Lord inside the tall Washington Monument. Search the scriptures. The memory of the just is blessed. May heaven uh, to this union continue its beneficence. In God we trust and train up a child in the way that he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. In the White House, an inscription by the first president to inhabit the White House, John Adams himself, is cut into the marble facing the state dining room fireplace. It reads, quote, 
I pray heaven to bestow the blessing, the best of blessings on this house and on all that hereafter shall inhabit it. May none but honest and wise men ever rule under this roof, close quote. And I look at the scene today and I look at the recent debates among the two main candidates for president and I tell you what, my heart breaks for what I see. But I will tell you this, that despite what I see with my eyes and hear with my ears, I know that there is a God who is faithful. I know that there is a God who says, if you will cry to me, I will hear you. If you will humble yourself before me, I will hear from heaven and I will bring healing. You know, when Jesus is going in to Jerusalem, and we'll, we'll get to the text here in a moment, and this is why this is going to be done in at least two parts. When Jesus is going in, into Jerusalem, he's going to heal a man who is blind. Think about this. Every time Jesus did a healing miracle, it was a parable. In other words, underneath the physical healing, there was a spiritual message. Bartimaeus is the last healing before the cross, and Bartimaeus' physical problem is that he's blind. And the nation of Israel was blind. Jesus said of the Pharisees, they're like the blind leading the blind. If the blind lead the blind, are they not going to fall into a pit? Jesus said, scarcely does this people hear with their ears or see with their eyes. Because if they would hear with their ears and see with their eyes and turn in their heart, I would heal them. And then he goes to the cross. Despite how the nation treated him, despite the confusion among the disciples, what does he do? For, for the sake of love, because he came not to be served, but to serve, he dies. His ultimate healing is recorded in 1 Peter 2, 24 and 25. By his wounds, you are what? Healed. You see, in the face of all that was around him, he continued on the path of love. He laid down his life that others could be truly healed and he, he was treated, you know, he was often mocked by the religious establishment. He goes to the cross being mocked. He says, I'm going to be mocked, scourged, spit upon. And yet he lays down his life to a rebellious people. Why? Because he loves them. Even while they're doing this, even while they're some 40 years away from their ultimate destruction, he comes for the sake of love. And the church needs to learn that lesson. We live in a divided nation, there's no doubt. And you and I may have our particular passions about which way this should go come this November. But I'll tell you this, the church's greatest light is the light of love and truth. In fact, many of our early uh, uh, colleges, one, some of the well-known ones like Harvard and Yale, you know what? They, their whole uh, foundation, their mottos are Christian mottos. They were set up for the training of ministers for the sake of the gospel. Do you think that people that go to Harvard and Yale now realize their school's motto? Or if they do, do you think they realize that this, this university was established for the purpose of the gospel? Well, I'll share more of the uh, stuff with you later in terms of the country, but let's move into the, the healing of Bartimaeus and let's pick it up. We're in Mark 10. That was all introduction. But this is a short account, so we won't move into chapter 11 until next time. And they came to Jericho, Mark 10, 46, and as he, Jesus, was going out from Jericho with his disciples, a great multitude, and a great multitude, a blind beggar named Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the road. Now, if you look at the name in Mark 10, 46, Bartimaeus, Timaeus, Bar is son, and Timaeus is his father. So all we know here is that his name is the son of Timaeus. And you say, well, what's the big deal about that? It's not that big of a deal. We don't really have his name. He's just known as the son of Timaeus until you do a little search on the Hebrew word for Timaeus. And the root for Timaeus actually means unclean. And then, there, then you start thinking, wow, there's, there's probably a reason why Mark lists his name here. Because the name means unclean. And here's Bartimaeus sitting by the road. He is begging. Other gospel accounts say that there's another blind beggar with him. These beggars would be at the city gate or they would often be by a busy road. And they, that's what they did. They begged for survival. Here's a man who's blind, physically blind. 
And he has a name, which means he's unclean. How fitting. As Jesus rides or gets ready to actually walk into Jerusalem, he's going to ride on the colt later. He meets a man whose name means unclean and who's blind. That's why Jesus is coming to die. He's coming to die for people who have fallen short of the glory of God, and that's all of us. And a great multitude was there, and here is this poor blind beggar named Bartimaeus. And when he heard that it was Jesus the Nazarene, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, verse 47, have mercy on me. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. You know, one thing that we learn about someone who may have a challenge in one area is that they often have heightened senses in another. So someone who's blind often has a heightened sense of hearing. And I don't know if that's the case here with Bartimaeus, but I'll tell you this, Bartimaeus, when he hears that Jesus is passing, he will not be denied. And he begins to call out, Son of David, have mercy on me. Do you guys know that in the Gospel of Mark, and I think Luke as well, this is the only place where a person calls Jesus the son of David. A blind beggar is the only one in the Gospel of Mark who actually calls Jesus the son of David. The rabbis used to say that when the Messiah came, he would be the son of David, or they would even just call him David or the greater David. Because they knew that he came from the line of David. And the blind beggar knows Jesus' identity better than seemingly anyone else, perhaps even the apostles at this point. They've made some confessions, but we do wonder if they really understand what's going on. And here's what he says. The blind beggar, whose name means unclean, or at least his father's name, says, Son of David, that is Jesus. What does he say? Have mercy on me. The blind beggar recognizes his condition, and if we want to be healed, that's what we need to do. If you're a note taker, in order for us to be healed as a people, as a church, as a nation, we have to understand our condition. You know, if you go to any kind of uh, recovery type of ministry, one of the first things that they'll tell you is if you want to recover from what ails you, if you want to overcome an addiction, you have to acknowledge what your problem is. Your problem must be identified and put before you, and you can't hide from it. You can't deny it any longer. You know, in Alcoholics Anonymous, they make them say, my name is so-and-so, and I am an alcoholic. Because by speaking those words, you acknowledge, you take ownership of where you are and what you need to do. The blind beggar says, I need mercy. Son of David, have what? Mercy on me. Number two, if we're going to experience healing, if you're taking notes, we have to call out for mercy on our nation, from our leaders, and from our pulpits. We have to ask God for mercy. Because when we ask God for mercy, I think he will deliver it. Doesn't that sound simple? You just have to ask for mercy. What do you think keeps us from asking for mercy most of the time? Pride. We just have a tough time acknowledging that we need help. But if you want to have your eyes opened, if you want to be moved from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, you must ask for God's mercy. And sometimes what God does, and he did this certainly with Israel, is he, he did something like this. He would allow Israel to be dealt with harshly by an invading nation so Israel could look nowhere else but to God. Israel, when they were out of options when they couldn't make any more political alliances with Assyria or Egypt, Assyria to the north, Syria to the north, Egypt to the south, when they ran out of options, and that's often how God put them. And by the way, personally, God will do that to you and me as well. And you might ask the question, why does he do that? Why does God put me in positions where the only option is him? He does it for you. He does it for you. Because he knows when you're in a spot where all you can do is turn to God, then the best solution is going to come to your life. But we can be such a stubborn people. How many people do you know right now personally who are fighting God? And the singular reason that they fight God is they don't want to admit that they're broken. They don't want to admit that they need mercy. But you know, some of our greatest leaders were found on their knees praying. And Lincoln was one of them. He said, look, I, I pray, I'm paraphrasing, I pray 
every day because this job is too big for me and I need to pray. Because when we pray, heaven is enlisted. God takes simple things, but simple things can be so hard sometimes for us humans. And Jesus is getting ready to ride into Jerusalem on that colt. He's gonna go to a temple where they've become corrupted. The religious establishment is ripping off people within that temple. They are uh, selling uh, sacrificial animals for exorbitant prices. The Gentiles who are trying to get a taste of who God is are are met with this uh, market of, of stuff. And Jesus goes in there and says, this house shall be called a house of prayer for how many? All the nations. Yet you've made it what? A den of thieves. That's right. Now, I want to take you to a book in the Old Testament. It's the book of Hosea. It's, um, you got Ezekiel, Daniel, and Hosea. Let's go to chapter eight for a second. I want to show you a picture in the book of Hosea. And here is the book, um, Hosea chapter eight. And we'll just pick it up at verse one, Hosea eight, verse one. Now, if you've studied the book of Hosea, Hosea is the uh, hero figure. His name kind of has a connection to Hosanna, which they will proclaim to Jesus as he rides in. And Hosea, his name means to save or that God would save. Hosea is instructed by the Lord to marry a woman named Gomer. No, I do not know what her parents were thinking. (laughs) Except if you've got some gray hair, when they named her, they might have said something like this. Surprise, surprise, surprise. That's a little Gomer pile for you. Anyway, and I'm sure she was surprised. What we know about Gomer is that she was a wayward woman. Uh, God told the prophet Hosea, I want you to marry her, but I wanna, I'm going to tell you something. She's not going to be faithful to you. She's going to cheat on you. And God made the prophet enter into God's world. Here's how. Because in marrying a wayward woman, God said that Hosea would act out God's relationship with his bride, Israel. Because his bride can't seem to be true to him. She cheats on him despite how faithful he is to her. She cheats over and over and over again. In fact, there's a point in the book of Hosea where she's gotten herself in trouble with another man probably been impregnated by that man, and Hosea, her husband, has to go purchase her from the pimp. And I'm not kidding when I say that. She probably is under the rule of some man who sells her out for sex or does this for himself, and Hosea has to go purchase her back. Sound familiar? He has to buy her back to himself, and Jesus is about to go buy us back with what? His blood. That's the purchase price. Now look at this. This is Hosea 8. Look at verse 1. It says, Put the trumpet to your lips. Like an eagle, the enemy comes against the house of the Lord. That's the temple. Because, Hosea 8, verse 1, they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. Now if you have an ESV, it says, Like a vulture, the enemy comes against the house of the Lord. Now here's the picture. In the book of Hosea, it's an interesting picture. Whether it's an eagle or a vulture, it's a bird of prey. And the picture is that the eagle or the vulture is flying over the temple of Israel. Now, whenever you see a vulture up in the air flying above a certain area, what do you know is happening beneath? Either something is dying and the vultures know they're about to have food or something is dead. Get this. Here's the scene in Hosea. The vulture flies over the temple. And Hosea prophesies in a time when the northern kingdom is going to fall to Assyria, and then eventually the southern kingdom falls to Babylon. And when Nebuchadnezzar comes into Israel and destroys that area, he levels the temple to the ground, and they have to rebuild the temple. At the time of Jesus, Herod has rebuilt the temple, and it's a glorious structure. And even that temple that they are so proud of eventually falls to the ground. In fact, Jesus says, not one stone is left upon another that is not thrown down. And here's the picture. As the vulture flies over 
the, the holy place of the temple. The book of Hosea shows a God who says, even though you continue to do this to me, I will love you to the end. That's the God of the Bible. And so no matter where our country goes, you guys, or what we may face personally in our lives, it's required of a steward, if you go back to Mark and we'll finish it, that he be found, she be found faithful. So here's blind Bartimaeus. He says, son of David, have mercy. He said something that a lot of people in Jesus' day refused to say to him while he was on the planet. But Bartimaeus knew his condition, and he cried out. And many, Mark 10, 48, were sternly telling him to be quiet. But he kept crying out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. In Luke's account, the people that are there, he's shouting, Jesus, have mercy on me. And the people are trying to quiet him down. Luke 18, 39 says, those who led the way were sternly telling him to be quiet, but he kept crying out. This is in Greek, this is a word of deep emotion, sometimes rendered as the cry of an animal. Son of David, have mercy on me. And people were saying, shut up. Would somebody shut him up? And the more they sternly rebuked him, and, and it says that the people who were leading the group were telling him this, so it's quite possible that even the apostles are telling him to be quiet. The more they, sit, they tried to quiet him, the louder he got. You want to talk about annoying? You ever been at a restaurant? <laughs> and there's that kid there. You know, that kid. And sometimes under your breath, because you're a Christian, so you don't want to say it out loud. <laughs> you say, with somebody. And he, he would not give up. You see, he knew that Jesus was passing by Coming through Jericho to die on the cross, this is a one-moment opportunity. This is the moment of a lifetime. See, Bartimaeus has probably heard that Jesus is a healer. Maybe he's even had some dialogue with people who dropped him a coin. Hey, did you hear about Jesus? Maybe he's even talked to someone who's experienced the healing of Jesus. And when he is coming by, Bartimaeus, he will not let the opportunity pass him by. No way. Once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. I've watched a lot of people over the last couple decades in the church at memorial services and things that we've done, and I've preached the gospel to people, and I've watched them fight God, and they let the moment pass them by. Why? Because they didn't want to ask for mercy. Look, if you're here this morning and you haven't made it official, may I just exhort you? I ask for mercy. I think most of the people in here ask for mercy. And that is the key. Because when you do, you'll experience the cure. Chuck Colson, who was involved in the Watergate scandal, ended up going to prison for it, had a personal experience with the Lord Jesus Christ. He shares the following words. He says, that night when I sat alone at my car, my own sin, not just dirty politics, but the hatred and evil so deep within me was thrust before my eyes, forcefully and painfully. For the first time in my life, I felt unclean. And worst of all, I could not escape. In those moments of clarity, I found myself driven irresistibly into the arms of the living God. Out of options, sitting in his car, knowing that he was probably facing prison time. A man that was in one of the more powerful positions in the United States became born again that night in his car. He finally came to terms with his own sin, not the problem of everybody else, but his own heart. I recall a story, uh, they were doing the Nuremberg trials and they were putting the Nazi leaders on trial for war crimes there was a man in there, a Jewish man, who had experienced the torment of the Nazis. And in the Nuremberg trials, they would bring these men in that had done these atrocities. And when one of the generals or one of these guys was brought in, the Jewish man who had suffered the atrocities but had survived, when he saw him, he fainted. And people had to revive him in the court. 
And so when they talked to him later, they said, why did you faint when that man walked in, that, that man that had done all these terrible atrocities? Did you faint because you were afraid of him? Did you faint because you recalled the terrible damage that he did to you and others by killing people around you? And he goes, no, that's not why I fainted. He said, I fainted because when he walked in, he looked so human. When he walked, you know, when I was in that camp, he seemed so big and so evil and so terrible. And when he walked into that court, he looked so human that it shocked me because my images of this man had become so big and he was so small. And then he says, then I looked at my own heart and I said to myself, if he could do that, I could do that. And that's what made him faint. And like, wow, that's not what I expected to hear. But see, that is our humanity. That's why Bartimaeus is such a great example for the nation. This is what the nation needed to do. The nation needed to say, Lord, we've been blind. We've been broken. Open our eyes. Someone once bluntly asked blind and deaf Helen Keller, isn't it terrible to be blind? To which she responded, better to be blind and see with your heart than to have two good eyes and see nothing. Close quote. And I think Bartimaeus that day saw a lot more than a lot of people around him. And when you call for mercy, there's going to be some people around you who tell you to be quiet. When you say Jesus is the answer, there's going to be some people around you who say, don't say that. And they may even try to sternly rebuke you. May I just exhort you? And here's where I've come with that whole thing. I don't care. <laughs> because I don't answer to them. I'm not going to stand before them on judgment day. Amen? I'm going to answer to the one who came and died for me and said to live for his kingdom. So Bartimaeus, you know, Jesus, huge crowd around him, all these pilgrims heading to Jerusalem for the Passover feast, which will be celebrated that final week as Jesus is uh, there for Passover week and his passion and the cross and the resurrection. And here's a poor beggar. How many times do you think Jesus ran into people who just wanted to talk to him, cried for mercy? You know, if you were heading towards the cross, would you have stopped for Bartimaeus? I mean, Jesus could have said, look, dude, I've got problems. You know, let, me, let me just you know, inform you. I'm, I'm coming up to the last week of my life. I'm going to die for the sins of the world. But you know, the Bible says something incredibly insightful about the heart of our God. Verse 49 says, Jesus stopped. There's so many times in my life when I think the Lord tells me, Michael, stop. Michael, take a look around you and stop. And I'm like, no, no, Lord, Lord. Lord, you don't know. I, I'm busy. I'm running late. <laughs> I've got to be here. I've got to be there. And oftentimes when the Lord tells me to stop, it's not for a stranger. Sometimes it's for a stranger, but often it's for the things that I say I value the most. Are you with me? The things that I say I care about the most and I'm so quick to pass them by in my daily life. Things that God's put right in front of me. Things that he says I'm to value and treasure. And he often says to me, Michael, stop. I'm like, but Lord, I gotta do it. No, you don't. You need to spend some time with me and you need to invest in the things that I've called you to do. And Jesus stopped and said, call him here. Beautiful heart of our Savior. They called the blind man saying to him, take courage. I'll add this, be quiet. <laughs> take courage, arise. Look at verse 49. He's calling for you. Can you imagine Bartimaeus? Man, he had to be fired up. He, who, he, he, Jesus? With all those people, he's calling for me. Sometimes, you know, we feel like we're one hand in the hand of tens of millions of people. Does, does Jesus really care? Some of you need to mark verse 49. He's calling for you. In Isaiah 6, the Lord said, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah said, Here I am, Lord. Send me. Have you been called? Have you heard his voice? 
He's calling for you. He called for Bartimaeus, seemingly a nobody in the crowd. And casting aside his cloak, notice Bartimaeus, he jumped up <laughs> like he was on a spring. And he came to Jesus. His cloak was probably his only earthly possession that he owned. And it would keep him warm at night. And he would fold it to collect uh, alms for himself. But he cast it aside. I don't know what you might need to cast aside. I don't know what's keeping you down. But he jumped up and he came to Jesus. And this is the key. In answering him, Jesus said, what do you want me to do for you? Now, if you're blind Bartimaeus, how would you respond to that question? I mean, you've probably had to be helped over to Jesus. You probably didn't take a straight line because of the crowd. Maybe a couple people, hey, he's calling for you. Come on. Maybe they held his hands. And you come to Jesus, and you're obviously blind. And he says to you, what do you want me to do for you? I want to make this personal. If you had a moment like this with Jesus, and Jesus asked you, he called you, you had a face-to-face -face with the Lord of the universe, and he asked you, what do you want me to do for you? What would you say? What would you say right now, today? How would you answer that question? What do you want me to do for you? Remember, the, uh, James and John had said, Lord, we want you to do for us whatever we ask, okay? Okay, and mama's here too. What did they ask for? The best positions, right? Jesus said, you don't know what you're asking for. If you want to sit on my right hand and my left hand, guess where I'm headed? I'm headed for a cross, and my right hand and left hand is going to be two more crosses. You don't know what you're asking for. What do you want me to do for you? You know, Bartimaeus could have said, well, isn't it obvious but I think Jesus is trying to bring out the man's faith. And the blind man said to him, Rabboni, Lord in Luke 18, 41, Rabboni is simply rabbi or teacher. I want to regain my sight. May I suggest to you that if you came to Jesus and you asked the same spiritually speaking, if you came to Jesus and said to the Lord, Lord, I want to regain my sight. I've lost it. Somehow my eyes have been clouded. Somehow by my situations or life experience, I've, I've become blind. I want to see again. I want to regain my sight. I want it back. One writer said, every time a man sins, he becomes blinder, less capable of realizing what sin is, less likely of realizing that he's a sinner. For unfor unforgiven sinners, darkness and light are the same. Their blindness makes it impossible to see. What we need is for God to remove our darkness, to open our eyes, and to give us life. And Jesus, after he said, Lord, I want to regain my sight, Jesus said to him, and I think Matthew's gospel says, yeah, go ahead and mark this down because this is important. Matthew 20, 34 says, Jesus was moved with compassion. And he touched their eyes. There were two of them. Mark focuses on the one, Bartimaeus. And immediately they regained their sight, Matthew 20, verse 34, and followed him. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. Immediately he regained his sight. And what did he do? He began following him on the road. You see, when you become a Christian, you become a new creation in Christ and your eyes are open how many things have changed for you since you became a Christian? Everything. Everything. How many illuminating moments have you had? How many, like, wow moments have you had as a Christian? Like, wow, I didn't see that one before, but now I see. Like the blind man in John 9, once I was blind, but now I can see. Luke 18, 42, receive your sight, your faith, has saved you. That's the way you could render the Greek. What Jesus wants from us is faith. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you that this incredible scene in Mark's gospel is so insightful to what we truly need, spiritually speaking. We need 2020 in our hearts. To see the times, Lord, that we live in, to see you 
for who you are, to see our need, to cry for mercy. These are simple, but they're very profound things, Lord, because they're what you call us to do. But as a Christian, we know that this is already done. You've already gone to the cross. You've already paid for our sins. It's a done deal. What really matters now is that we follow you like Bartimaeus did. And once his eyes were opened, man, he followed you right into the Passover and the crucifixion and resurrection. What he was able to see, he was able to see the gospel. Lord, let us see it clearly. Let us be those who follow you and share the good news of Christ. And I pray that as people are here this morning and maybe they're wrestling with some things in this message, maybe their eyes have been opened for the first time. Maybe they've regained some sight. I pray that you'd help us to respond in a way that brings you honor and glory and uh, that moves forward the gospel in our country, Lord. We pray over America. Pray over the United States. We pray that we will, we will return to you, Lord, as a people. And we'll start in your house. It will start with the church. Thank you for the precious saints that are here, wonderful people of God. I pray you'll bless them and keep them, keep their eyes fixed on you, the author and perfecter of their faith. We love you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to invite you, if you want to come to the front during this song, if you've opened your heart to Christ today, if you want to do that, you want to say, Lord Jesus, be my Savior. I want to start following you today. You can do that right now. You can turn from darkness to light. You can have your eyes opened, but you must repent of your sin and trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. You might ask Pastor Michael, how do I do that? You do it by prayer. You make a decision in your heart. It's something like this. Jesus, I'm sorry for my sin. Thank you that you died on that cross for me. Thank you that you rose from the dead. I'm going to receive you as my Lord and my Savior, and I want to follow you. That's the intent of your heart. If you want to rededicate your life to Christ, if you want to come forward and just pray for the U.S., we don't do this every week, but we're going to do it today. We're going to open up the front for prayer. If you want to make a stand for Christ, for the nation, maybe you just want to come up and pray and ask the Lord for mercy on your family, on this country. Now's the time. Don't let the moment pass you by. So anytime during the song, we're going to, let's all stand together. And if you want to come forward, I'll meet you down here along with some other prayer warriors. So God bless you guys.